Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Humans are hardwired to hope. Helen Keller, a famous author, said, Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. And Nicholas Nickleby, one of Charles Dickens' characters, said, It's always something to know you have done the most you could, but don't leave off hoping. Or if it's of no use doing anything, hope. Hope to the last. Humans are hardwired to hope. I asked my co-workers this week whether they feel hopeful for the year ahead. And if so, what it was that gave them hope. One said this, After losing my partner two years ago, I never thought I'd ever feel hopeful again. Though with recent heartache and a big wake-up call, I'm very hopeful for the year ahead. I can't wait to become a better version of myself and to make the world around us happier for my little children. I'm hoping 2024 can finally be our year. Another of my co-workers said, What makes me hopeful for the year ahead is deciding to prioritise what I value rather than getting stuck in easy routines. Something we can all relate to, I think. Steering clear of the commercial news, spending more time in the garden, getting into some good exercise habits and planning little holidays throughout the year to local places I keep meaning to go to but keep putting off because I haven't prioritised it. And a third said, we are hopeful for the year ahead as we are going into the new year as a healthy, happy family. Money is tight, but we prioritise family getaways as making memories and enjoying experiences with the kids is our priority. As I said, we are hardwired to hope. And we are hardwired to hope for genuinely good things. Isn't that interesting? And yet, when Australians were asked last year whether they felt hope for the future... 61% said yes, 39% said either no or they weren't sure. So at any point in time, up to 40% of the population cannot say that they feel hopeful for the future. In fact, an honest atheistic perspective is provided from Bertrand Russell, who said in the light of the fact that really the atheistic worldview has no ultimate end except destruction, he said that the best we can hope for is unyielding despair. So how does it work? How does hope work? And specifically as Christians, what can we say about hope? We're taking a break from Acts today, if you haven't noticed, and instead we're going to be looking at this passage in Romans 15 and applying it to the Christmas message. I'd like like to tell you a little bit about how I came to choose this passage so it doesn't just feel like it's randomly plucked out of the air. It's Christmas time, if you hadn't noticed, uh, and I've had a little look at some of the the history of the church's expression of Christmas over the last 15, 1800 years. There are four biblical concepts that have really come to capture the essence of the Christmas season, what we call Advent. You'll see them on doors, on cards, on welcome wreaths, on front doors, uh, everywhere you'll see these words. 
less so in our post-Christian world. But those four words are love, joy, peace and hope. So as we get ready to break for Christmas, I've decided that today I want to address this topic of hope. And as I was considering which passages might be good for the job to talk to us about hope, I landed here in Romans 15. But see, not only does this passage deal with hope, it also hits love. It hits joy. It hits peace. In fact, I'd say it's one of the most Christmas-appropriate passages in all of the New Testament. Now, the the whole first half of Romans is, is like this theology section. These glorious topics of sin and justification and Christian freedom, they fit really well with where we've been in the book of Acts over these last few weeks. But the second half, from chapter 12 right to the end of Romans, is the, is the practicalities of living out the faith in Christian community. See, if Christianity were a trade, the first half of Romans would be trade school, and the second half of Romans would be learning on the job. So the text today is right in the middle of this section on practically living out our faith. But this doesn't mean it doesn't get deep, as we'll see. So let's get into the text. It's Romans chapter 15. If you're not already there, follow along on your phone. Bible's at the back if you need them. It says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, this is the other cool thing about this verse of the week. If you're on the Cal's chat group, uh, you'll have seen Ducky's post about our welcoming team uh, that went up a week or two ago. Oh, guess which verse he used? He used this exact verse. Welcome one another. So as a church, we're already trying to apply this verse But it's not really our main verse for the day. It's kind of the springboard into the swimming pool, which is the rest of this passage that forms the bulk of where we'll be splashing around today over the next 25 minutes or so. Because as I said before, this whole section in Romans is about practical advice for Jewish and Gentile Christians living out their faith in God. And what we can see is that Paul loves to start each new idea with like a practical bit of advice. And then he follows up with his theological justification for the device that he gives. So having started with something practical, welcome one another, he then lays down the justification, which is grounded in something that is true about God. In this case, it's welcome one another because God has welcomed you. And as we'll also see, Paul builds this whole passage, this whole passage all the way through to verse 13. It's all about hope. There are really only three key verses that teach us in this section. Let me lay it out for you so it's easy to follow. This is the outline here. Hopefully you can read it, but it's simple anyway. We had our little intro, verse 7. But these three verses we're looking at today are verse 8, verse 9, and verse 13. Verse 8 is the origin of our hope as Christians. Verse 8, the second half, and verse 9 together form the objective of our hope. And verse 13 at the end of the passage is the obtainment of our hope, so how we get that hope. And then there's this chunk in the middle that you will have heard Paul read out, verses 10 to 12. And that's really these old, all completely Old Testament quotes that Paul uses to try and prove his point about hope. So the origin of our hope. Let's read verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is just a fancy way of saying the Jews. Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness. In other words, Christians, 
Christmas rather, it happened to fulfill God's predictions. See, Jesus himself fulfilled no less than 300 Old Testament passages that all spoke of a coming Messiah. Now, the odds of these 300 passages being fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus are so diminishingly small, you can't even picture how unlikely it is. Now, as far as the Christmas story goes, at least five of those prophecies were fulfilled just in the story that we celebrate at Christmas time. Over and over again, God has proven both his power and his truthfulness. And never was this better demonstrated than in the coming of Jesus. But see, there's something else in addition to God's power. Something else in addition to God's truthfulness in fulfilling his promises that's on display here. See, Christianity is the only religion that sees God becoming a man. The fact of this is mind-blowing. We heard it earlier being read out. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the other attribute that's on display here is one that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And that is God's humility. It says that Jesus came to serve. Philippians says that Christ, who though in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a human servant. So that's the origin of our hope, God's truthfulness, God's power and God's humility in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's character as expressed through Jesus becoming a servant. But what is the objective of our hope? Verse 8, the second half, Paul says that God did all this in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Paul tells us the objective of our hope is first to confirm the promises he made to the nation of Israel, to confirm the promises he made to the patriarchs, and second, being the result of this, that the Gentiles might appreciate God's mercy and praise God, which is what glorify God means in this context. So I have two questions at this point. What were the promises to the patriarchs and how were they fulfilled? Question number one. Question number two, how did Jesus coming show God's mercy to the Gentiles? I'm going to give you a 20 second recap of the Old Testament. Because if you don't understand the Old Testament, we once did when I was in high school, we once did Gone with the Wind in 20 minutes. This is kind of like that, but it won't take so long. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you won't understand the New Testament. If you don't understand Christ coming into the world, you won't understand the message of Christmas. See, God made the first people Adam and Eve. They sinned, which basically permanently separated mankind from God. And God promised at that time to fix this one day by sending a saviour. And then God chose this man, Abraham, to be the father of a nation. A nation that would be a blessing to the world. This people came to be known as the nation of Israel. God also promised a certain future for Israel in a particular land. But then Israel became enslaved in Egypt and God chose Moses to free his people, which he did. And he gave the people the law for their nation. 
There were two kinds of laws, those that were specific for the nation of Israel to set them apart from other nations and those that really had this permanent application that transcends time and culture. But God also confirmed the land promises that he made to Abraham. And then there was David, the second king of Israel, but the first chosen by God. And he was considered a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us. Despite his imperfections, God promised that he would send another king in the line of David to rescue Israel and to restore them to their proper place. And then we had the prophets. Many, many prophets foretold the coming of a Messiah, a future redeemer king who would bring salvation and restore all of God's promises. So back to our questions. What were the promises to the patriarchs and how were they fulfilled? Well, this is where Paul's Old Testament quotes come in. Now, every Jew knew about the promises of a coming king. They all knew that. They were expecting it. Who would restore Israel. But Paul reminds them now of the other part of the picture. He actually quotes from each of the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. The law, the writings and the prophets. In a way, he's saying, this is the whole of what the Bible says. So what does it say? And see if you can see some commonalities in each of these quotes. Let's read them out. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Psalm eighteen forty nine. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Deuteronomy thirty two forty three. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117.1. And again, Isaiah says, the root or the shoot of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah 11.1 and 10. What do these verses have in common? They all talk about Gentiles. That's any non-Jew that includes you and it includes me. You see, Paul is reminding the Jewish Christians in Rome that God chose the nation of Israel, but he didn't choose Israel to be saved in the same way that we are saved by putting our faith in God. See, the means of being saved and being saved and, and welcomed into God's family has always been by having faith in God. And there were always Jews who were faithful. And there were always Jews who were unfaithful. And there were always Gentiles who were faithful. And there were always Gentiles who weren't faithful. In fact, a number of those faithful Gentiles make their way into the family tree of Jesus, as we hear about at Christmas. Now, Israel wasn't chosen to be saved. It was chosen to be the instrument by which God's message was shared with the world. That was why Israel was saved. And Paul is reminding the people of this. This was to happen from the beginning of Israel's history. That the reality is they were often so busy fighting and being generally ratbags that they were pretty poor fulfilling that mission. Sounds familiar to me. In fact, speaking of promises to the patriarchs, the patriarchs usually means the first three members of the family of Israel. That's Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the other name for Jacob being Israel. And what's fascinating is that we see the exact same truth of Israel as God's representatives to the Gentiles every time God makes his promises to these patriarchs. I'm going to run through it super quick. To Abraham in Genesis 12, 
He said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, get this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then to Isaac in Genesis 26, Sojourn in this land, says God, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And again to Jacob in Genesis 28, Behold, the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, to Jacob, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread about from west to east, from north to south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So not only across Scripture, as Paul shows us, but also so clearly at the foundation of the nation of Israel, as we've seen here, Israel were called to reach the world for God. But they had very limited success. That is, until one perfect Jew came. As we see, to perfectly fulfill the law of Moses and to serve the nations. To reach them with the good news. In fact, to be the good news. In other words, Jesus, as servant and as Messiah, fulfills all of these promises and so many more to the patriarchs. How? Well, he, as the perfect representative of the nation of Israel, becomes a blessing to the nations. So how does he do that? Well, this ties in with our second question. How did Jesus coming show God's mercy to the Gentiles? Well, see, this is the exciting part. This is the whole mystery that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, Israel expected a Messiah. And this Messiah was promised to rule the nations, to bring peace to the world. This is what it meant to be the root of Jesse in that final quote we saw. Now, if you didn't grow up in church and you haven't done Bible studies, you'll have no idea what the root of Jesse means. It actually makes its way into lots of old Christmas carols. It really should be translated the shoot of Jesse. That Greek word can be translated both ways. It's something that comes out of Jesse. So who's Jesse? Well, Jesse was, in fact, the father of King David. So the shoot of Jesse is David himself and all of David's lineage after him. Because one of the promises of the Messiah, as we have heard earlier, is that he would be, like David, a king. Someone who would come and establish a new government and rule the nations, it says, with a rod of iron. As it turns out, see, Jesus is born into the family tree of David. Jews at that time were meticulous about keeping family trees. Interesting, inter- interestingly, this is one of the aspects of Jesus that has traditionally been celebrated at Christmas. That one day Jesus will return and set the world right. That's what he promised. And that has traditionally been part of the Christmas celebration, anticipating the return of the Messiah this time as ruler. That's what Advent means. Advent means coming. It means coming. Advent means he arrives 
He arrives as a baby, but he also arrives in the future as a conquering king. But you see, there are other passages about the Messiah too that were clearly recognized at the same time as Jesus by contemporary Jewish leaders around that time that showed that the same Messiah would also suffer. Because the mercy that God showed was by sending his only son. See, the God of the universe took the form of a baby. That is the Christmas message. So does this answer the question, how did Jesus coming show mercy to the Gentiles? Well, we're almost there. What is the definition of mercy? Biblically, it means deserving some sort of punishment, but not getting what you deserve. That's the definition of mercy. And see, what we deserve as sinful people who have stomped over the laws of God, what we deserve is separation from God and the death that that separation brings from God, the life giver. But see, God, in his perfect love, he says, no, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to show you mercy. How? By putting that punishment on Jesus Christ who took it to the cross. That's the carol that we sang before. I took a photo because I had never sung that verse of that carol. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word became flesh. The babe, the son of Mary. See, the one... God in flesh chose to take the consequences of our rebellion upon his immeasurable and perfect self. That is the message of Christmas. Because it is the reason he came to earth in the first place. To enter our suffering so that our suffering would one day be no more. That's how mercy is known to the Gentiles. Through divine self-sacrifice. Through self-suffering. There was quite literally no other way. So the answer to the first question... That Jesus Jesus fulfills the promises to the patriarchs is also the answer to the second question. Because those promises were that the Gentiles would be reached with God's mercy. So we've had the origins of hope. God's perfect character displayed in Jesus. We've had the objective of hope. That Israel would come to be reassured of the promises to them. And that the Gentiles would come to hope and and to praise God. But what about the attainment, attainment of hope? How do we get hope? Verse 13, it really brings a home for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you read it really slowly and carefully, you'll notice that it says that it's when we believe that we have joy and peace, and from that joy and peace come hope. It's interesting because my first inclination is to think that it's the hope that I have that gives me joy and peace. And that may well be true, but that's not what this verse is saying. See, it's saying that the joy and peace that we have by believing result in hope. It'll be important here to realise that the word hope can be used in a few different ways. Three, in fact, as it turns out, both Greek and English use both the word hope in, in the same ways. So the, the Greek word elpis and the English word hope can be used in both of these different ways. The first way, the expression of a desire without any kind of certainty. For example, we're on the car on the way here and, um, and Kendall's brother called up and said, uh, you know what, I'm really hoping to win the uh, lotto next week, the 70 million. 
Um, that's that first way that we use the word hope. It's really expressing something that you would like that you really don't have any idea how likely it is to happen. All right? um, the second uh, way that we use the word hope is an object on, w- on, what, on which we put a positive expectation. So we have we, the thing we hope in. Right? Um, for example, I, I have a hope in my house. I have an expectation in my house that it will keep me safe and dry tonight when I go home. And Paul and Titus, we are waiting for our blessed hope, Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of Jesus. So there is hope that is something that is certain in the future. But then the third sense of the word hope is when it's a sense or a feeling or an experience of well-being concerning the future. And I think this is the sense that Paul uses here when he talks about us abounding in hope. So with that definition, the, the feeling of well-being about the future, let's pass out this passage as we seek to tie it all together. Let me paraphrase verse 13 with that definition. See, as you believe, may the God of hope, by the power of his Holy Spirit, fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with a sense of well-being about the future. But how can this be? How is it that peace and joy cause the experience of hope? Well, this is where we get practical. See, it seems self-evident to me that the extent of our hope will depend on two things. Number one is how good the promised future is. And number two is how certain the promised future seems to me. As an example, someone, uh, you know, we could picture someone wanting to win, win lotto next year, um, paying off all their debts, debts, relaxing on the beach, okay? But given that the likelihood of that is extraordinarily low, then it doesn't really change the hope that that person possesses. It doesn't increase their sense of well-being to think, I'm going to win the lotto. Or perhaps someone who's experienced a more ho-hum, average existence is not that exciting. Um, They could picture that things next year are going to be exactly the same. They're not going to change. They're still going to have a ho-hum existence. Now, this might seem extraordinarily likely, but the vision of the future is no better than what it is now, so there's no sense of hope in that. And this is where Christian hope, see, begins to diverge from every other kind of hope. Because I don't believe it's wrong to put hope in worldly things per se. It's okay to look forward to a promotion. It's okay to look forward to that positive change in circumstance. It's okay to look forward to an end of the current experience of suffering if we think there's an end to it. It's okay to have have hope in these things. It's even okay to have some hope in things which will be achieved by our own effort. That's okay. We do it all the time. As we see in those stories at the very beginning, so much of those were dependent on what we're going to do about it. See, the difference between Christian hope and other kinds of hope is not that one is right and one is wrong. Rather, it's that one is certain And one is not. One depends on us and one depends on God. One depends on circumstance and one depends on divine sovereignty. One is flitting and one is forever. So what do we do when we lose our job? When we hate our career? When our loved one gets sick? What what do we do when a loved one dies? What do we do when we face suffering that is not of our own making? Or when our hope depends 
on our good choices, but we find we're not as reliable as we'd like to be. And deep down, I think we all know that all of these things are possible. And in fact, if you were to be really honest in the scheme of life, these things are in fact quite likely. See, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, intellectually, you know that you have a future that is both certain and good. Intellectually, we know that. They're both grounded in God's character. But for some reason, we can still fail to feel hopeful. How is that? Well, if we go back to the two determiners of abounding hope, we know that the future we expect is indeed very good, so that's not the problem. The problem is not the future that we expect. The future that we expect is very, very good. Therefore, the lack must be the second. How certain this future seems to us. So how do you increase the sense of certainty of a future we believe already to be true? Well, this is exactly what Paul is answering in this text. It seems that through joy and peace increasing, that we increase hope. But how does that work? Let me illustrate. So we all know that a bad mood can cause extreme pessimism, right? I mean, it's amazing when you're having a bad day how grumpy everybody else seems. But likewise, when you have a bad day, it's amazing how hopeless things can seem. Well, let me put it another way. What are the opposites of joy and peace? Depression and anxiety. When I do, as a GP, when I do a a suicide assessment on somebody, um, one of the biggest determiners of whether someone's at likely risk of suicide is whether they feel hopeless. See, depression and anxiety are the killers of hope. But what it turns out to be true is that the opposite is also true. See, living in joy and peace gives us an optimism about the future. And living in a spirit-enabled joy and peace gives us a spirit-enabled optimism about the future. But see, what if I'm a believer right now sitting here? What if you're a believer and you don't feel joy and peace at the moment? Should you now feel guilty that you don't have them and then just try a little bit harder? No. So how do we get joy and peace? By believing Believing what? Well, what Paul has just said. That God has fulfilled his promises and will continue to do so. In other words, believing the Christmas message. That the God of the universe took on human flesh, coming in the form of a helpless babe, and all that that now means for us. And I'm not talking about just asking God for more joy and peace. It doesn't work like that. Yes, that's a part of it. We should ask God for more joy and peace. But that's not the whole picture. See, as you spend time wondering about the goodness of God, that God changes your heart. See, there are so many truths to ponder that will increase both your joy and your hope in his promises. Truths, like the fact that if we put our trust in Jesus, we are already called his children. Truths that no one can snatch us from his hand, that, we are, that he has given us his spirit. That we have eternal life and we already possess eternal life. That even if we suffer in this life, there is a greater reality, an eternal reality. That God is working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This is the basis of our hope. This is the gospel. 
So there are things to know and ponder about God that will increase our sense of joy and peace and thus, thus hope. But also the better you actually know God personally, the more you will trust him and his promises. This is a known fact, isn't it, that the more time you spend with someone, the more that their character rubs off on you. This is why joy and peace are fruits of the Spirit. Two of the first three mentioned. So I say believe in God's promises. Spend time pondering Him this Christmas. Spend time with Him. Be filled with joy and peace and then come to appreciate the certainty of God's promises for the future and thus experience abundant hope. But as we start to wrap this up, let me just ground this for us in the here and the now. See, the origin of hope is God's perfect power, his perfect truthfulness, his perfect humility, his perfect character revealed in Jesus. The objective is that he would be worshipped as people come to know him. And the obtainment of that hope is through joy and peace and the Holy Spirit as we spend time wondering about God and in his presence. But how will that change our experience of the next two weeks of Christmas? When you have that same old conflict with the same old family member. It's going to happen. When disappointment hits. When you're relaxing on a summer holiday and you're tempted to put all your hopes in your own ability to have comfort. When you plan the year ahead and you put hope in your own abilities to achieve good things. When you miss the family you can't see right now or the family you can never see ever again where does your hope come from let it more and more be on the certain promises of God who as we celebrate at Christmas came as a helpless babe who understands our weakness so that he could overcome those weaknesses on our behalf let's pray Heavenly Father we just praise you so much for your goodness We thank you for Christmas, this time where we get to stop and reflect on your promises, Lord. Just stop and reflect on all that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you will do. Knowing, Lord, that you are both perfectly powerful and perfectly good. And that you love us immensely. And Lord, that you you will work all things together for good in the long run. This doesn't mean we avoid suffering. That doesn't mean we avoid hard things. But we know that our hope can be perfect in you. Lord, that you are the God of hope. That you wish us to have hope. You wish us to have joy. You wish us to have peace. And you do that through love. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Who not only came as a helpless babe, who was, who was completely vulnerable. But who then went to the cross on our behalf. But I pray that this Christmas that each of us would be able to find time to reflect on your goodness. Be able to find time to um, ponder your wonder. And Lord, that you would confirm in us that that true and wonderful sense um, of hope. Lord, give us hope for this season. Give us hope for next year. May we be bringers of hope to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.